But I personally love assigning the group project, even though I know it's incredibly frustrating. And there are always people that procrastinate, slack off, and there are always people that take up more of the work because then it teaches you how to develop those boundaries and it teaches you how to figure out a way to work together, which is something that's going to be vital no matter what you choose to do as a career. You're listening to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast, the only leadership podcast run by undergraduate students dedicated to helping undergraduate students lead in diverse fields. From people in diplomacy to entertainment, from CEOs to student leaders, we feature people from all walks of life. It's all part of the mission. Here at the Messina Leadership Institute, we make leaders better. From Warden Wilson College and a PhD in dance from Texas Women's University. They are a published poet and author. His second novel, Unwieldy Creatures, coming later this fall. She also has experience as an advice columnist, photographer, manuscript editor, and sensitivity reader. Dr. Sai, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So it's college decision-making season, and people are deciding what majors they want to go into. And there are people thinking about going into majors such as dance, creative writing, stuff where going to college is it can be impactful, but technically you don't need to go to college. For those people that are on the edge, why would you go into a major like that? So I want to start by saying that um, I don't think that this this uh, sort of expectation that an 18, 19 year old should immediately go from high school to college I don't agree with. I think sometimes, you know, you need to be in the workforce a little bit, you know, reading and paying attention and watching things to actually find out what is the career path for you. And I think it's always good to just sort of expect that it may change. You know, it's sort of rare to actually start in a career path and just take that all the way to the limit, right? But for those that are on sort of the edge in terms of, in particular, dance, creative writing, and other fields that don't necessarily require a college degree, I would say a couple of things. One is that it's really hard to get a job without having a college degree. And some of that is a sort of like white supremacist notion around higher education. But I think the thing that is most important about it is it it typically says to an employer that you have the determination and work ethic to stick with one thing, to stay in a position, but we also have to think about the fact that that doesn't take into consideration the immense amount of debt that students are expected to go into at a very young age. Uh, I went to college in the late 90s and um, seeing the just the difference in tuition, the, the incredible elevation of tuition, you know, I get it, it's really complicated and you shouldn't take all of that lightly. But the other thing I would say is that you, the, the biggest, I think the, the most important thing is that it really does give you a sense of community and it gives you um, sort of laboratory where you can kind of work out these different ideas you have and, and learn from experts in your field. And it will also teach you the kind of position that you want. And I want to say one quick plug for majoring in anything English related is that you would be amazed at the number, like how flexible it is as a career choice, because you can go anywhere from being a tech writer to being a teacher in many countries around the world. Almost every country is looking for an English teacher because it's such a dominant you know, language in so many places. Almost every company you can imagine has a marketing department or a communications department. 
a lot of people go from an English or creative writing degree into pre-law because it teaches you about how to develop an argument. So I think a lot of these arts majors do end up being way more flexible than sort of like the stigmatized view that like you only have one or two positions that you could apply for. So I think it's also good to, to keep that in mind that what you think you're going there for may not be where you go, but there may be a lot of other options that you're not considering that will still benefit from that kind of degree. So you talked a little bit about this community that you get by being in these majors. Did you have any experiences with non-academic communities before you went to college? And can you talk about the differences that an academic community might have that a non-academic group might not? So, you know, all of the, I think they're called gens, they get the benefit of something that I didn't, which was that the internet barely existed when I went to college. So the internet had started right around my senior year of high school. So it was still like, it technically existed, but it was in its majorly, you know, it was very much in its infancy. So there was no way outside of an academic community that I probably would have been able to access a community at all. That's not true for today. And I do think that's something that college students should think about in creative writing or dance or some of these finer arts in terms of a, a master's degree, I think it's le- like it's less necessary because we do really have a lot of internet-based communities now. But given all of that, I still think the um, in-person, which I know we're talking during the pandemic, so who knows when we'll really be able to like be in person safely, continuously in the way that we have before. But I think that there's a, a real value in building a community around an academic interest that is just not the same. And that in-person physical people that you can sort of riff off with and you can talk with and you can collaborate with, it is just different than the online community. I mean, there's a lot we can do now because of the internet, but I still think it, it can't really replace that sort of energetic um, dynamic that you have in person. The other thing too, is that we love to hate the group project, but in almost every possible line of work, no matter what major that you have, you have to figure out how to collaborate with people. You have to figure out how to like solve differences, conflict resolution, and you're going to be often in collaborative activities with people who don't do their work, who are late, who are frustrating in all these ways. And I personally love assigning the group project, even though I know it's incredibly frustrating. And there are always people that procrastinate, slack off. And there are always people that take up more of the work because then it teaches you how to develop those boundaries. And it teaches you how to figure out a way to work together, which is something that's going to be vital no matter what you choose to do as a career. And this is a question of something that I'm particularly interested in. I noticed a lot of Frankenstein when I was looking you up and like looking through. Can you talk about, I love Frankenstein. I just want to hear more about your fascination with the story. Yeah, so I um, started reading Frankenstein in college. So I read it in a romantics literature class when I was a sophomore in college. And I just realized this actually recently that probably meant that I was around the same age as Mary Shelley when she wrote it. So I always like that because she was 19 when she wrote that book. And initially, I think, you know, I grew up as an, as an identical twin. I am biracial and I have, let's see, how do I want to put this? I would say that both of my parents are, are some form of narcissistic. And so there are a lot of themes already happening in the book that I felt just 
I was naturally drawn to it. Um, and, you know, in the late 90s, when I read it, people weren't really talking about biracial identity. You know, they weren't talking about narcissism. And so these were things that I think were incredibly informative and I found really powerful. I really liked the way that that Mary Shelley sort of has Frankenstein the monster kind of revolve around around each other and they're they're sort of there's this really interesting duality and synchronicity that's kind of shown through these two characters that seem very different but sort of have these very similar ways of seeing the world and then finally I was just really drawn to the creature story I thought I mean, he's by far the most sympathetic character in the novel, which is, you know, one of the real unexpected beauties of it. Even when I teach it, nobody likes Victor Frankenstein, right? He's like the most inseparable, annoying, like person that you can imagine. <laughs> he, he has many opportunities to just handle the situation, whether it's in a terrible way or in, in a way that's less harmful, but he just refuses to deal with the situation at all. And then there's just this very interesting gender aspect to it where she basically kills off all the women in the book and sort of forces the men to deal with themselves in a world in which they cannot rely upon women or upon, you know, upon genders other than cis men. And so I also found that really fascinating. And yeah, I don't know. I just sort of became, well, I don't know. I read the book and then I was really interested in it and then sort of moved on with my life, just sort of did my thing. And then... Let me think, how old was I? And then my early 30s, I was in this really problematic relationship with a narcissist. I said this to a group of college students the other day and they laughed at me because I said that then, you know, I was in this really difficult breakup with this very narcissistic artist and I <laughs> decided to reread it as kind of like self-help, like, okay, what is this thing about narcissism and how can I figure this out? So I'm just going to go back to Frankenstein. And then that was when I became very obsessed with studying the novel and then but studying all all that surrounded the novel so um Mary Shelley's relationship with her husband Percy Shelley a lot of the really complicated dynamics in their relationship her um very real lived experiences of having several miscarriages but also she had a lot of children die like under the age of five from various complications her own mother Mary Wollstonecraft died very early in her life, like she was a few days old. Also due to a man's negligence because the doctor basically like didn't wash his hands properly and he ended up giving her an infection. So yeah, so at that point, I just became really fixated on it in a sort of more complex way where I wanted to see all the kind of inner workings of it. And that was when I decided to seek out a choreographer to collaborate on a dance theater adaptation that we did about Frankenstein and some of the surrounding stories. And then I guess I'm trying to think the last thing was in 2019, I just thought I was starting to see that there was a real rise in in vitro fertilization in terms of people having access to it. And I been noticing that that meant there are a lot of more, a lot more multiple births. So we have a lot more twins in the classroom. I have a friend who was teaching at a private high school and she said like literally half her students were twins, you know? And so I thought, well, this seems like a perfect sort of environment to sort of think about a retelling. And so, you know, that's the novel that's coming out in August. It's called Unwieldy Creatures. And it's a queer biracial gender swapped retelling of Frankenstein through reproductive technology. And then I was kind of curious, like, you know, and a lot of the, the retellings that are doing that now, 
you know, what happens if Frankenstein is a woman? What happens if we put this in, you know, a queer non-binary landscape in terms of the characters? How does that sort of shift some of these themes and make them more complicated? So I don't know. I just think Frankenstein's amazing. And I think it is written in a way that it just holds a, a kind of universality that I think a lot of the other classic novels don't personally. But I, I do think that I'll just be obsessed with Frankenstein for the rest of my life. <laughs> so you mentioned the way that Frankenstein resonated with you, especially as a biracial person. And you talked about how you changed it. You were retelling the story to represent typically marginalized people like what's so important about dedicating your platform to telling stories about queer people and people of color so I mean most people know this by now but when I was growing up and you know this was happening for for years and years and years before me we didn't hear any stories about ourselves. We didn't hear stories about people of color. We didn't hear stories about queer people. When I was in high school, it was sort of like queer people didn't exist. There was, you know, the birdcage, I think. Ellen hadn't happened yet. That is one thing that's really extraordinary about the internet is that it has created this sort of expansiveness about, you know, with social media and all of that, where, you know, a young teen can be in even a rural environment. And if they can get access to the internet, they can see people that are like them, like real actual people through social media and social media communities. But that was not the case for me. So it's just an incredibly, I think, isolated and lonely experience to to read these stories or to, to watch film and television over and over and over again that never show any aspect that you recognize. And a lot of work has been done on this. I think it's it's gotten a lot better, but I think we still have a long way to go in terms of not just what stories, not just who is being featured in the stories that are being published or greenlit on film and television, but what kind of stories are being told about them or being sold about them. So for example, you know, a really common critique of the kinds of stories being sold for queer people is that we often only see stories about queer people undergoing a lot of trauma or, you know, these like very dark coming out stories where they end up being alone because their community rejects them. In terms of stories featuring people of color, we're still really fighting with you know, white authors to hire sensitivity readers to really think through a lot of the ways that they represent people of color. So I think it's still, you know, it's gotten a lot better, but it's still incredibly important. And for me, I write these stories because I know as a child that I would have felt less alone and felt more connected if I had read them. And so a lot of what I write is sort of connected to that, connected to what I would want to read and what would make me feel that I was in a community, even if I didn't get to access, you know, anything that would sort of provide me a link to an, an outside community like me. All right. So you're an editor, you mentioned sensitivity readers and something that the Bacino Leadership Institute, who, if the listeners do not know, are the people that make this podcast, they say that feedback is a gift. And have you ever struggled with giving or receiving feedback? And how do you get past that? I mean, feedback is a gift that sort of depends on some various factors. So I've definitely struggled with receiving feedback. I've had 
you know, a lot of teachers, especially white teachers who didn't understand the work I was doing and I felt were really reductive and we're not thinking about the, that there's a person behind the writing. For me as an editor, it's always important to start with what's positive, what's working in the piece, what I think is valuable about the piece. That is always where I begin. It's where I begin as a teacher. It's where I begin as an editor. And also for me personally, I like to construct my feedback in the form of questions like, you know, what would happen if this happened instead or, you know, give like ways to expand it where the response of the writer hopefully is that there's opportunity rather than being shut down. Because one of the things I think about, especially young writers, is, you know, we're all very sensitive, you know, and if you just start in with the critique, what can happen is that the writer will just like X all of it. And, and I think often a writer is not actually aware of what they do well. And so that's why for me, it's always important that you start with what they're doing well or what, what insights you think the piece has. The other thing is that there's something kind of like, I don't know, controlling and self-centered and believing that you are like the ultimate authority on, on a piece, you know, I'm just one person. And in terms of how I edit, I'm thinking about the aesthetic of the magazine. I'm thinking about any language or depiction that I think is harmful to other people or would, you know, would be upsetting to other people trying to explain that to them. Those are some of the things I think about in terms of giving feedback. In terms of receiving feedback, for the most part, there's only one person that I can actually say this doesn't apply to. But for the most part, I just get upset, you know? And so sometimes I get upset because I think somebody has actually been really problematic in the way they've given me feedback. And sometimes it's just that I'm super sensitive and a perfectionist and, you know, I just internalize things. So what I like to do is just, I just put it away for a minute because the other thing too is even if they tell me even if they praise the work I tend to not see it and I just get really sad about all the things they're telling me to change or or that you know they're giving me sort of critical feedback so I just kind of put it away for a couple days and usually if I come back like oh actually this feedback isn't that bad and oh here are some nice things that they said and then I just kind of take their suggestions one at a time but only if I really believe it's going to make the piece better. So I also think it's really important for writers to think about that too, that if they really don't connect with the feedback, they they don't have to go with that magazine. There may be a place that understands them the most. And it's really important that you're only taking the feedback you actually think is beneficial and not just, I'm just going to take everything everybody says to me, no matter what because I'm wrong and they're right. Just really make sure it actually honors the vision that you're writing with, you know? That is like a really interesting notion that, because I feel like everyone is like, when you, when you are told to get feedback, you're told to take it. How do you determine if it's feedback worth taking? Yeah, I think that space is really good because it's important to, to sort of separate how much of this is about ego and insecurity and how much of this is about the actual vision. So that's what I do first, you know, take a couple of days off. And then really it's just about my instinct about the piece. Um, and I think you just have to really like listen to that voice inside yourself. And I think that it usually will not steer you wrong, but I mean, I know professional, you know, writers who've been writing for a long time who still 
who still aren't sure, right? And they'll say, hey, I'm getting these really troubling, confusing, contradictory fee- feedback from an editor. Would you, you know, would you take a look at this and just like, let me know if I'm kind of like overthinking it. And so that's really helpful too. If you have a friend or a colleague that whose opinion not just matters to you, but you feel gets you, gets gets the work that you're trying to do. I think that can also be super helpful. Okay. So this is a question that's kind of important to me because I don't know if the listeners know, but I am non-binary. And what advice do you have for other non-binary people that are, that are trying to break into the professional world? Especially like, I know my concern in particular is that I won't be taken seriously. Mm, I think it can be really hard and really tempting to not insist on fair, honorable treatment. I would say fight for your gender identity, fight for your pronouns. We live currently in a world that has accepted the very real thing of non-binary identity. You know, this is not the 50s. We have non-binary people and, you know, we have celebrities, we have very important people who are saying that they are non-binary, which is incredible. And so I think like, just try as in, and I'm not saying this is easy. I think it is really difficult, but to really try to, to celebrate yourself and insist on yourself in exactly the way that you identify with yourself. Right. Uh, I don't like that word identify in that way, but you know what I mean? Um, And if, you know, let's say that you're in a workplace and let's say that the job itself, the tasks of the job you love, but people continue to misgender you, they continue to mock you, they continue to erase you in certain ways, that's not, maybe that's not the right place for you. And I think that those bargains can be difficult to figure out. And, and it was difficult for me to figure out, actually, like, I felt like, oh, well, I sort of present to people as femme. So I'm not allowed to claim that I'm non-binary because it's not fair to the people who, you know, get misgendered and deal with a, a, a specific harm. I was really scared to wear masculine attire. Like what if my students get weird or, you know, and, you know, my students for the most part have been fine. Every once in a while people get weird, but not very often. And it's, you know, it's actually been better than I expected. So I think, you know, we are in a space where, and it evolves over time. I think the first time someone misgenders you, let's say in a workplace and you don't do anything about it, that's okay. Like you're also not required to be on the reaction the minute it happens at every occasion, right? But I think the most important thing is to just make sure you really honor yourself and you feel honored. And I'm a firm believer of handling it in whatever way is the safest for you. So for example, I'm super introverted. I'm not a person that if somebody says something to me that I'm going to always immediately be able to react verbally. So I'm somebody that really needs to like collect my thoughts and email a person, right. And say like, Hey, but actually, by the way, like my pronouns are, you know, my pronouns are any pronouns, but I really don't want someone to like, always use she, for example, right? So, and I think the other thing about being non-binary is if it feels like a person really wants to to be better, 
that I think it's good to actually like offer them some level of generosity and some initial level of education, but it is also not your job to just go around like teaching people forever, you know? So, um, so yeah, I would say like, those are the things that I think are the most important and do things in your own time, you know, take care of yourself. Hopefully you can find allies or advocates that will help because sometimes it's just easier if you're not always the one having to make sure that that is happening. Um, And then, you know, don't be afraid to report it, right? Like if somebody is being really misgendering and bullying, I would say like report people anonymously, but also take care of yourself. But other than that, I think that you will find actually that there are a number of people in the workplace, especially now, that are supportive and advocating and and welcoming to people who are non-binary in ways that have never happened before. So I think it's actually a really exciting time to be non-binary. And you never know what you're going to, how you're going to impact other people, right? So for example, you may just be being yourself, you know, insisting on your pronouns, explaining to people your gender as your own individual self, right? And then you might have a coworker who has a child who's going through understanding their gender identity. And, you know, just in your presence, you may be sort of helping somebody in a way that you have never thought of, and you may or may not even be told about it, right? I think there's a real power in in, in just insisting on your existence and on being treated with respect and don't be ready to knock them until they give you a reason to knock them. Right. But, but go in with sort of the benefit of the doubt, I think, and, and then try to take care of yourself and just establish boundaries, even if they're scary, I think. Yeah. Clearly you you're at a really good point in your career. So this like didn't happen to you, but like, I know that a fear that I have what other people might have, especially starting so early in their career is that like, if they, as you said, leave their job if they get misgendered too much or don't respect their gender identity, that they won't be able to find another one. How do you, like, how did you deal with that fear if you had to deal with it at all? Well, okay, a couple things. I think that there are good organizations out there. I think there are organizations that do really care about being inclusive in many different ways. And, you know, this is still illegal. It is still gender-based discrimination sex-based discrimination. So it is illegal in almost, I mean, I'm sure that there are some like terrible states in which it is not illegal, but I, I actually don't think that it will be as hard in 2022 as it was in, you know, 1998. So I think, and, you know, it's funny because social media, you always want to be careful about what you do on social media. However, I think a lot of organizations know that it is possible to create real negative publicity from their behavior. And I do think that that does, I mean, obviously they should behave differently for other reasons besides being shamed on social media. But I do think it does create a situation in which a lot of organizations know that it is no longer beneficial for them or productive or a million other reasons to not welcome people regardless of their gender background, their racial background. And 
there are going to be people that are going to be willing to support you if you have to do that. So I think, you know, go for it and just make sure to find the right position. These are also questions you should consider asking an interview. Let's just say like, I use, I use neo pronouns. How are you, how are you going to handle, how are you going to handle this? Is this going to be a problem for you? Even if they give you a sort of like, politically correct, quote unquote, answer, I think you will be able to tell in their reaction what kind of environment they'll be able to give you. And always remember in an interview that you are interviewing them as much as they are interviewing you and you are a gift to them as well. So yeah, so that's what I'd say about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much. So unfortunately, we're sort of running out of time here, but I do have a few last questions for you. And that is, what thought leaders do you follow in social media or the news? And what books, podcasts, or other media do you suggest to leaders like yourself? So I really love Robert Jones Jr., who is a Black queer writer, and he is well known for, I think that he calls himself son of Baldwin on everything. So he does that on Facebook. I'm not sure about Instagram, but I know he's on Twitter. And I, I just really appreciate his views on race. And I think he's really thoughtful, really open to other people's viewpoints. So I really like him a lot. Okay, so I am still very late to the podcast game, but I do have one podcast that I've been listening to recently. It's called Dolly Parton's America. And it is actually really fascinating, really well produced. I think it's really complex and I really, and just sort of really fully develops her as a person, how she's sort of come up and hear her thoughts around gender and like a, a bunch of other issues that I think are really interesting. And then finally, I really like Kizze Lehman, who is a Black Southern writer from Mississippi, and he has this really wonderful memoir called Heavy. I strongly recommend it. There's also an audio platform for it. And um, and then, you know, I know I, I mentioned Son of Baldwin. James Baldwin is someone that I return to often, who I think gives just really great insights for people that want to go into leadership. One of the things I really love about his work is that even in the 60s, you know, in the midst of civil rights movement, lots of issues around racial segregation and oppression that he was always just really fearless, I feel, and expressing anger towards what was happening that was wrong and hope at the same time. And this was a, you know, a Black queer man, you know, the middle of the 20th century who the FBI had a whole file on him. And so I sort of feel like if he can go out there and continue to speak that way at a time like that, then that inspires me to try to also do the same thing. Thank you once again for appearing on the show. I'm really grateful for her. And to our listeners, we'll hear from you next week. Who the FBI had a whole file on him. And so I sort of feel like if he can go out there and continue to speak that way at a time like that, then that inspires me to try to also do the same thing. Thank you once again for appearing on the show. I'm really grateful for her. And to our listeners, we'll hear from you next week. On behalf of everyone at the Pasita Leadership Institute, I'd like to thank the podcast team, 89.5 FM WSOU, for allowing us to use their facilities and you for listening. Follow us online at www.shu.edu backslash leadership, on Instagram at Bacino Leaders, and on Twitter at SHU Leadership. At Seton Hall, we make leaders better.